Because of that, today we're going to focus on not just the oral teachings of Judaism in general, called the oral Torah, the explanation. Not just talk, we won't just focus on it in general, though that should hopefully be a, we'll do another class maybe on that topic. Uh, but we're going to focus on the most important work of the oral teachings known as the Talmud. Now you've all heard of the Talmud before, but just by a show of hands, how many people have studied the Talmud before? Not too many, not too many. It's the most important work in Judaism, and we'll soon explain why. Um, but surprisingly, most Jews have not ever got a chance to actually read it or study it. So what is the Talmud? The Talmud, also called Gemara, and the two words are used interchangeably, I mean the exact same thing, Talmud or Gemara, and it's also called Shas. Shas is another one. There's a political party in Israel called Shas. Sorry? You said the Talmud is called the Gemara? The Gemara and Shas. Those are two other names that are used interchangeably, all for the same thing, same work. And they were always used, those names, interchangeably. So it's a massive work, and it is the most comprehensive and authoritative work in Judaism. And in many ways, the most important work in Judaism. It's a collection of scholarship. The brief description, which of course doesn't do it justice, is it's a collection of scholarship from Babylonian yeshivas or Babylonian schools that was put together between the years 200 and 500. So it's about 1,500 years old. And this was put together by scholars as a commentary or analysis on a book called the Mishnah, which is the first written work of our oral Torah. So in order to understand what the Talmud is and why it's important, firstly we need just a very brief background about on our oral Torah. What is the oral Torah? And we will, God willing, do a class Focus just on what the Oral Torah is. But what is our Oral Torah? So, Moses comes down from the mountain after going up three times because of this problem we mentioned earlier with the golden calf. And he comes down and now he has this huge amount. He spent a lot of time up there on the mountain. God has taught him 613 commandments. A lot of teachings, a lot of information. Now he has to teach it to the people. So he sets up, you may recall a couple weeks ago, his father-in-law Jethro helped Yisrael, helped him set up these, um, this whole structure of teaching it to students, who will then teach it to their students, who will then teach it to their students, to teach Israel all of these teachings. So all the teachings that he has been taught, he now teaches to all of the people, and they create this elaborate structure um, to teach all the people these teachings. They end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. And for 40 years, they're studying these teachers' teachings. It's all in their head. They haven't yet written anything down. They're studying these teachings for 40 years. They're memorizing every single teaching must be memorized. You've got to know it fluently. You've got to know it perfectly. Everybody, if you get it wrong, people correct each other, right? So that everyone knows it perfectly. At the end of Moses' life, God tells Moses to write down the Torah. The Torah is a massive written work, about 80,000 words, just under 80,000 words. Um, 
big book or big scroll, as we all know today, um, that is split into five books, 50, uh, 54 portions. It tells a lot of the history and the story of the travels through the desert. It goes through the 613 commandments, but it doesn't give us much detail. Much of it is very cryptic. In other words, it's hard to read. It's not clear what it's saying. And it's written really in code. The whole written Torah is written in code. And God actually teaches Moses what's called the Shlosh Esrei Midos, or 13 rules, 13 keys to use, and they're somewhat complex keys, to decipher the code of the written Torah in order to find all the instructions of the oral Torah hidden in the written Torah. So all of the instructions that Moses had been given and that the people had been taught for 40 years can be found cryptically in the written word. Um, but you have to know how to read it. You have to be able to, using the keys to decipher the code, the Shlosh Esri Midos, you're able to find all those rules in the written Torah. But the instructions remain in the oral teachings. Our covenant with God is not with the written word. We don't look at the written word and say, this is what it says, and so this is what we do. Rather, we say, this is what our oral tradition tells us. This is what the Torah, Sheba Al-Peh, Hebrew for the oral tradition, tells us. This is the instruction. So the written word is only a cryptic document to help us remember the instructions, uh, a coded document. But our instructions are actually all in the oral teachings. Now, these oral teachings were passed on and developed because a lot of the instructions were just general instructions, but then had to be applied over the generations. You had to apply um, laws to different situations. New questions came up that hadn't yet been resolved, and you would have to apply existing rules to new situations. Uh, some, there were also rabbinic rules that were made over the years. The Sanhedrin, the Juda- Judaism Supreme Council, when it was functioning, um, created rules for our people. So all of these rules then added to the growth of our what we call our oral Torah. And so it was memorized from gener- by generation to generation. Scholars spent their lifetime memorizing it. And all Jewish children were taught the Torah, meaning the oral Torah from a very, very young age, and taught to memorize the Torah, and taught the rules, and taught the laws, and everyone had to memorize it, everyone had to know it perfectly. And if there was ever a question, they would go back to the Sanhedrin, who would rule what the correct version of the teachings are. So we had this oral Torah that lasted for a very, very long time. It lasted for about 1,500 years. After the destruction of the second temple, the second temple was destroyed about the year 70. So after the destruction of the second temple, the, um, the, the Jewish people were now, many of them were in exile. There was a large Jewish community in Babylon. All over, there were Jewish communities all over the Roman Empire. There was a lot of persecution in, in Israel. There was a period in the 130s, 140s, called the period of Shemad, where for about 15 years or so, Jews were not allowed to study Torah or keep any of the commandments. The Romans were determined um, to quash the Jewish rebellion and um, end Judaism once and for all, and Judaism became illegal. And there were other difficult times. The Sanhedrin wasn't meeting as frequently. And so a great leader at the end of the 100s called Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was the president of the Sanhedrin in his days, decided that it was time to record the oral teachings. 
So he recorded the oral teachings. He gathered all of the scholars in his day. And in his day, actually, the Roman emperor, whose name was Antoninus Pius, um, the emperor Antoninus was actually had, had a personal relationship with Rabbi Yehuda Nasi and was very good to the Jews. And it was a time when Jews were able to study freely and practice freely. And they were very, it was a very good time for Jews. But Rabbi Yehuda Nasi foresaw that this good time will not last. So he gathered all the great scholars to where he lived in northern Israel. And together they sat on this monumental work of putting together all of the basic laws in very, very shorthand. In shorthand, very brief, um, only the most important laws, and putting them together in a work called the Mishnah. Mishnah means um, the second, literally, from the word Sheni, second. So it's the work of the Mishnah, it's the second after the written Torah, it's the second thing to be written down. And so the Mishnah itself was split into six volumes, six volumes of the Mishnah, um, by subject, and then it was subdivided, each volume was subdivided into small, what's called mesechtot, or booklets. In total, there were 63 booklets of the Mishnah, which were then subdivided into chapters, which are then subdivided into what's called mishnayot, or individual kind of sections. So each section is a paragraph or so. Yes? So I don't know if I'm pronouncing the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who decided which were important to record? They were the Supreme Council. The Supreme Council made all the decisions in Judaism in general. Um, This was Rabbi Yehuda Nasser with a large group of scholars decided what to record and what to write down. They didn't write down everything. They wrote down the important, what they considered to be the most important parts. And even what they wrote down, they wrote down in shorthand. It had not been recorded until now. They decided to write it down. Um, Only uh, they decided to put it together and they put together this six-volume work called the Mishnah split into 63 booklets. So now they, they had the Mishnah. Now after the death of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, he died around the year 200. We don't have an exact year. After the death of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, persecution in the land of Israel increased dramatically. Um, and as a result, many, many Jews, including many scholars, left Israel and went to Babylon. So much so that the schools in Israel became much, much smaller and less prominent. And the schools in Babylon became much, much more prominent. Most of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's chief disciples or leading disciples had moved to Babylon and become leaders of the schools in Babylon. So during this time, a number of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's disciples decided to write their own books, adding to the Mishnah. One was, there was a scholar called Rabbi Chia, who had a school who wrote um, a set of books called the Brita. There was a scholar called Rabbi Oshia who wrote a group of books called the Tosefta, and many other similar books were written down. And all together were called Brita. Brita means outside. It was teachings from our oral tradition that had been left out of the Mishnah. However, what all of these teachings had in common, the Mishnah and all the Brita's that were written down in the early 200s, they were simply straight rules, straight information. There wasn't much analysis. Now, Jewish law had always been analyzed 
analyzed the source in the how it could be sourced and found in the co- written code of the written Torah. It had been analyzed when there were apparent contradictions, when there were questions, when other things came up. The Torah had always been analyzed in this very deep and critical analysis that that scholars and yeshivas had always done. That analysis was never written down in the Mishnah and Brita, but it did continue from generation to generation. Now, of course, each generation did not reanalyze from scratch, but the teachers of each generation would remember or would teach the analysis as they had studied it. And so the analysis was repeated every time they re-studied another topic. Of course, they went from topic to topic. They didn't, study the same, they didn't study the same thing continually. They covered different topics, different seasons or different, different um, semesters. And so when they got to a topic, they would, of course, repeat the analysis they had studied previously together with the names of the different scholars that had made different important points over generations. So with time, this structured analysis grew and grew and grew. And since the Mishnah had been written, the analysis was always, the the Mishnah was always used as the base work that they would study. And then they would quote Breiter or other traditions um, relevant to the Mishnah, they would ask questions, ask contradictions, bring up um, new questions that were not directly addressed, what would be the law in this case, what would happen here. Um, And so there would be this development, this discussion, and this discussion then continued from generation to generation. Some of this discussion happened in yeshivas in the land of Israel throughout the 200s. And then in the early 300s, much of this discussion was written down in the land of Israel. And the discussion was written down in a book that became known as the Jerusalem Talmud. Is that in Israel or in the land of Israel? In the land, this all in the land of Israel. Um, This became known as the Jerusalem Talmud. It wasn't actually written in Jerusalem. Jews during this period were not allowed to live in Jerusalem. Once Rome became Christian, around 300, Jews were not allowed to live in Jerusalem. Um, But it was actually written in northern Israel, in Tiberias, um, which is by the Sea of the Galilee. But it became known for some reason as the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, It's a collection of the analysis of over 100 years of analysis um, and the traditions of how they had analyzed the Mishnah um, in the land, in the yeshivas in the land of Israel. However, much more prominent than the yeshivas in the land of Israel throughout this period, starting around the year 200, were the yeshivas in Babylon. Originally, there were two great yeshivas in along the um, there were two great yeshivas in Babylon in the towns of Naharda'a and Sura. Later, the town of Nahardal was destroyed in a war, and the yeshiva moved to a nearby town called Pumpedisa. And Sura and Pumpedisa were the two great yeshivas that lasted for some 800 years. There were these two great schools that became the centers of learning. And any budding scholar from anywhere across the world, from as far away as Spain or as far away as um, Iran or Afghanistan that wanted to study and become a scholar 
um, would go to Babylon, to these great yeshivas. This is where all the scholars were. That's where you had to go. There only were two, there may have been small yeshivas, other places there were only two central yeshivas. Everybody would go to these schools where they would study and they would analyze and they continued this tradition of analyzing our oral teachings, um, bringing up new questions, comparing different laws, um, how they're relevant to each other, and uh, studying these different, these different laws. And the traditions of these analysis then continue from generation to generation, year to year, every time they came back to a sp- particular subject, they would go over all the entire analysis as it had been, they had studied it the previous time, all from memory. And then the students would memorize the entire anal- uh, structure of the analysis. And the next time they analyzed it, they would again go through the same structure and discuss this analysis, and it kept growing from generation to generation. Is that Iraq now? This is modern-day Iraq. This is Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, um, along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, and there's lots of small rivers in between them, and that's where these great centers were, and that's where this was. This was at the time there was a it was majority Jewish area. Um, Jews, the farmland was mostly Jewish, and um, it was under there was even a Jewish prince called the Reich Geluta um, that um, led the Jews. Um, there was a civil leader, and uh, we had we we were. Um, if uh, possibly a majority in this area for much of that time. So, so this analysis continued and these studies continued um, for many, for hundreds of years, until in the 400s, the decision was made to write down this analysis, to put it together, to compile it, to organize the analysis. And it was later described as a 60-year project. The analysis was... And the study and everything they had, um, the entire discussion was gradually put together, composed, the important parts left in, the non-important parts left out, and it was edited and re-edited and re-edited over 60 years as a generation. Um, it was edited, ending about the year 500 in Babylon. So they spent about 60 years editing this Talmud. And then this entire work became known as the Talmud or the Gemara. This work, the, this work of the discussion in the yeshivas as it had developed um, for really for 1800 years from the days of Moses, um, since the Mishnah had been written 300 years prior, it had been built around the Mishnah and the entire analysis together with the relevant laws, together with the, with the um, conclusions, together with the questions and the answers and the discussions is all, was all put together in this massive work called the Gemara or the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud. So, yes? I, I really have a problem if I'm understanding this correctly. Um, so the oral law, the word of God, okay, was carried on for so many years. But then they come around and they edit it. They decide what they want to keep, what they don't want to keep. and They so didn't throw changing. out any laws of God that they didn't like. So let me be clear. Nobody, no Jew has a right to throw out laws of God just because you don't like God's laws. You don't have the right to throw them out. They were editing their own discussions. They were editing what they felt was relevant within the discussion. Or if there were laws, not every time a law is applied, is it necessarily something they thought that would be 
important to keep for generations. So, but much of it was kept. They only, the original Mishnah only included what they felt was the most important things to put in. Everything else was left out, much of which was written down in the Brita um, over the next generation or so. Um, and then the discussion, not every detail of the discussion was necessarily that valid or that relevant. So the most important parts of the discussion were written down. But everything, they didn't cut out any of God's laws. They didn't say there were any laws that they didn't like. That they, they were editing their own analysis of the law. They weren't editing God's laws. So the Talmud now, as we have it today, is this massive work. It's written mostly in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language spoken by Babylonian Jewry at this time. Um, and spoken really in Mesopotamia and in much of the Middle East until the Arab conquest in the 600s. Um, so, and Jews spoke a um, Jewish version of Aramaic. So it's an Aramaic with a lot of Hebrew, of course, mixed in. The Talmud itself, though, it has its, many of its own unique words, many of its own unique sayings, many of its own unique statements, some of which have filtered into um, even to our to the English language and to others have come in from the Talmud. But it's a gigantic work. Now, the Talmud doesn't cover, remember, the Mishnah had 63 booklets. The Talmud doesn't cover the entirety of the 63 booklets of the Mishnah. It's unclear if it did, and then some of it was lost over time, or it never did, most likely it never did. Um, the parts that are missing are mostly the parts that are not relevant today anymore. What do we mean not relevant today? So, much of the Torah, we have 613 commandments. But most of those commandments are actually no longer relevant to us. Many of them are about temple service. The temple's no longer standing. The temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. Many of those commandments are uh, relevant to the laws of Tumor and Tahara, ritual purity and impurity. Somebody who was Tame ritually impure was not able to go into the temple or eat sacrifices. With the temple no longer standing, those laws are no longer relevant. Some laws were relevant to agriculture in the land of Israel. We have the Shemitah resting every seven years and certain laws of tithes which were relevant to farmers in the land of Israel. For Jews living in Babylon, far away from Israel, and when even in Israel itself there weren't any farmers really left, um, those laws were not really relevant anymore. They were still important, they're still God's law, but they weren't relevant. They're all included in the Mishnah, but we don't have Talmud on a lot of these rules and a lot of these laws that are not the booklets that deal with rules and laws that are not relevant. So the, currently we have, the, so the Talmud that we have covers 37 out of 63 books of the Mishnah. It is a massive work. It includes in the current printed version, and because it's so big and because um, it wasn't split originally as the Mishnah was into um, bite-sized paragraphs or sections, um, but rather it's kind of split originally into big chapters. Some of them could be very large. Uh, we've used page numbers in order to identify a specific quote in the Talmud. You want to quote, you quote by page number. And we've actually retained the same page numbers from the earliest prints of the Talmud done some 500 years ago. 
So we have the same page numbers. So in the page numbering system of the Talmud, the Talmud is 2,711 double-sided pages, or 5,422 pages. So it is a very, very large work, and these are big pages. There is a system that was started um, now close to a century ago called Daf Yomi, which is a system to study a double-sided page of the Talmud, um, in other words, two pages of the Talmud every single day, um, to study that, studying Daf Yomi, for someone to really study it, takes between, an, for someone who has a good background in Talmud and is very, you know, has a, um, is very familiar with the Talmud and has studied much of it already, um, it takes an hour or two a day to study a page, a double-sided page of the Talmud. And if you do that um, along this kind of system of studying one page a day, you'll end up finishing the Talmud after seven and a half years. So just to give you a sense of how big and um, how, how much it is. Um, and many scholars don't end up finishing the entire Talmud in their lifetime because it is such a large book. So... It's a lot of volumes. Um, it's 37, it covers 37 booklets. In, um, there's a, they recently translated, not recently, about 20 years ago, they translated the Talmud into English. The English translation um, is 73 volumes. Volumes. That's a bookcase, more than a big bookcase. So it was translated in English, it was all Aramaic. It was in Aramaic, yeah. Now that what you have your hand on is... I'm going to pick it up for you in a moment. So now, the Talmud, just what it includes, there are six orders of the Mishnah. The Mishnah has six orders. The Talmud, as we say, follow the booklets of the Mishnah. The first order of the Mishnah is called, or six volumes of the Mishnah. The first volume of the Mishnah is called Zrayim. Zrayim deals with all agricultural issues, or agricultural laws, such as the laws of Shemitah, which is um, the resting every seventh year, the laws of Miser, of tithes, of Teruma, which was the gift that had to be given to the Kohen from one's produce, the Bikurim, one's first fruit, um, and similar laws that are mostly only relevant to a farmer in the land of Israel. Of the book of, of the volume of Zrayim, only one Mesichta, only one booklet of the Mishnah has Talmud on it, um, or has the, ta- the Talmud commentary, and that is the book of Brachos, which is the book of blessings, which essentially covers all of our prayers. And that's the first book of the, ta- of the Mishnah and the first book of the Talmud. It covers prayers and blessings um, and talks about the prayer in great detail, of course, very, very relevant. Um, and that's the, actually the first book of the Talmud. Um, the second order of the Mishnah is called Moed, which is festivals. Um, Moed, um, ex- with one exception, all the Mesichtos of Moed, all the booklets within the vo- order of Moed, or the, within the volume of Moed, all have Talmud on them, including this one volume that covers Shabbos. There's one volume called Erovin, just on Erovs. Erov is the, um, we spoke about a little while ago, the um, 
areas around cities that you could, or around property to allow you to carry on Shabbos. There's also a few other types of Erev. So it discusses Erev. Um, and then it discusses the different festo- festivals. There's a book for Passover, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur, for Sukkot. Um, and then there's um, for a book on fast days, a book on Purim, um, and then a couple other um, a book on the Chal Hamoed, the in-between intermediate days of festivals, a book on the laws of Yom Tev, of what you're allowed and not allowed to do on the Yom Tev, on the festivals in general. So it covers our festivals. Then volume three of the Mishnah, um, volume three of the Mishnah is called Nashim, literally means women, but it's family law. And all the books of Nashim have Talmud on them. Um, or have commentary of the Talmud. It includes um, laws, uh, a book of Kiddushin, of marriage, of Gitin, of divorce, a book of Ketubah, the laws of the Ketubah document, and so it's all family law. Then, volume uh, four of the Mishnah is the book, uh, is the volume of Nezikin. Nezikin literally means damages, but it covers all of civil law. And so it includes um, three parts called part one, part two, and part three, or Baba Kama, Baba Matiya, and Baba Batra, that all discuss civil law. Then um, there's the book, a book called Sanhedrin, which speaks about um, courts and discusses the court system. There's a book called Makot, Punishments, about punishments in Judaism. Um, and then there's a couple, and so, and those books all have Talmudic commentary on them. The fourth, volu- the fourth volume of the Mishnah is called, sorry, the fifth volume of the Mishnah, thank you, is called Kadashim. Kadashim means sacrifices. This covers sacrificial law. And although not directly relevant to, the, to us today, it was studied in the Babylonian academies, and we do have Talmud on almost every book of Kadashim, and this may have been because of the importance of studying about the sacrifices. When we study about it, it's considered as if we have offered the sacrifices, so they continue to study. So there are uh, there's on, on there's books on different sacrifices. Included is a book called Chulin, which means mundane, and what it refers to is it's the laws of mundane slaughter and kosher. So it covers the laws of slaughter and which animals are considered kosher and which animals are not kosher and different koshering laws and um, related kosher laws. Then the sixth volume of the Mishnah is called Taharuts, which deals with the laws of ritual purity, which are no longer relevant now that the Talmud is no longer, now the temple no longer stands. We do not have Talmud on any of the books of Taharot, with one exception. The only book that we have is the book of Nida. Nida is a woman who has her menstrual cycle, and she is Tamei, and she has to go to the mikveh. Uh, she has to separate from her husband and then go to the mikveh. That, of course, remains relevant today, and therefore we do have the book of Talmud on Nida, and that is the final book of Talmud. So, so the Talmud is quite extensive, most of it, it starts as a commentary on the Mishnah, but it moves, as the discussion would have moved in the yeshivas from generation to generation, it moves from topic to topic based on the discussion in the yeshivas. And so most of it is law and discussion of the law, analysis of the law. Um, the Talmudic uses some very sophisticated analysis, including uh, a lot of abstract analysis, um, both 
comparing things using abstract rules. Um, this is a very complex analysis in the Talmud, which is why it's so famous for its difficulty. Um, it's, so it's mostly halacha or analyzing Jewish law. There are parts also known as agada. Agada means inspirational lessons, history, anything that's not law is called agada. Um, sometimes interpreting parts of scripture. And so about 10% of the Talmud is Agada. The rest is all Halacha, involves the laws. So I've brought with me today um, a book of Talmud. Um, this is one book. The book that I have over here, there's actually an old volume, as you could see. There's much nicer ones with much nicer covers. Um, this is actually the book of Bava Metzia, which is middle part, um, discussing the family, the, uh, sorry, civil law. Um, it's a thick book, as you can see. Uh, so I'm just going to open it up so you could get a sense of what the inside of the Talmud would look like. So, is that in English? This is all in Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay. So this is the first page of the Talmud right over here. Starts right over here. You can see it over here. Um, so this is just a little decoration with the first word. So the Talmud over here, if you can see, Starts with a Mishnah. This is the first Mishnah written by Rabbi Yehuda Anasi and his um, group um, around the year 200 um, from the booklet of Bava Metzia that he had made. And then you probably can't see it over here, but at a certain point when the Mishnah ends, it says Gemara. There's no paragraph over here. The Talmud is this middle part. And then the Talmud begins with a detailed analysis on the Mishnah over here, analyzing the particular wording, why the Mishnah chose certain wording, analyzing the exact discussion over here, which is two people fighting over a garment. This one says it's mine. This one says it's mine. Who do you give it to? What do you do with it? Right? And the Talmud said, the Mishnah says, well, they divide it. They divide it. The Talmud then raises a number of challenges to that division. Why should, how do you know it belongs to either of them? Maybe it doesn't belong to either, right? Maybe it doesn't belong to either of them. How come when this other debates over who belongs in elsewhere, whether something belongs to someone, we say the court holds it until someone can bring proof whether it belongs to them or not. We don't give it to either of them. Um, are they actually holding part of it? What about the part their hand is holding? Is that in their possession? So all sorts of different discussions are going to come up and contradictions. Um, so that's, this is the first, very first page of the, of the Talmud over here. It continues. And I'm going to get that in a second. I'm going to get that in a second. It continues. The book of, the book of Bav Matiyah is 110 double-sided pages. So, sorry, 100 Take that back, 120 double-sided pages. Um, so it ends over here. And um, then the rest of this is all commentaries. Okay. What do we have over here? Sorry? You can get this on Amazon? You can get Talmud on Amazon, sure. That one? Sorry? That one? You can get Hebrew Talmud on Amazon, sure. Sure. You can buy books of the Talmud, sure. Um, they're, they're widely available um, in many, many different print formats, and there are many, many different publishers today that publish the Talmud, including at least two translations or three translations in English that are widely available today. Um, so now, over the years, 
Many works of commentary were written on the Talmud. And that's what you saw around the page over here. Many works of commentary were written on the Talmud. Most of that commentary is not, on, is not found on the page. Some is found in the back of the Talmud. Many is found in other books. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of commentaries written on the Talmud. So on the page, they've put the most prominent commentaries that have um, been on the page for many years. And so generally we have, here's the next page. Here you can see two pages of Talmud side by side. You get a better sense of what it looks like. So on the page over here, we have the Talmud in the middle. This is the way it's generally printed. With commentaries on either side, two major commentaries. One is found on the left side or on the inside. It's always on the inside of the page. The one's found on the outside over here. So the one on the inside is the commentary of Rashi. You may have heard of Rashi. Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, who lived in the um, uh, late 1000s, early 1100s in, um, in, in Germany. And um, he was one of the lead scholars of German Jewry, one considered a father of, of German Ashkenazic Jewry. He had a great yeshiva in the town of Worms and um, had many, many, many students. But his greatest, he's best known for two um, commentaries that he wrote. He wrote a commentary firstly on most of scripture, um, on the Torah, and then most of the other works of scripture. And he wrote a commentary on almost the entire Talmud. And his commentary is essentially a basic explanation. It <coughs> translates difficult Aramaic words, for those who aren't so familiar with Aramaic, it explains the Talmud is written very much in shorthand. Um, there's no punctuation whatsoever. And it's very much in shorthand. And so Rashi serves as a very basic commentary explaining what's the question, what's the answer, what's going on over here, what the Talmud means. And it kind of serves as a commentary explaining the Talmud. So that's Rashi. On the other side, we have Tosvos. Tosvos is a collection of... Sorry, just my hand's getting tired. Um, <laughs> Tosvos is a collection of um, scholars in um, France, Germany, that lived between the mid-1100s and the mid-1300s. And they would analyze the Talmud, and they developed a very, very sophisticated means of analysis um, where they would point out contradictions um, between different parts of the Talmud from one work to another, um, where they would point out fallacies in Talmudic logic, and that would lead them to then develop interpretations or explanations to um, explain away those apparent fallacies and show why the logic still stands or explain away the contradictions. And so Tosvus is a very in-depth analysis. And so, and these were the analysis that had been taught in France and Germany, German yeshivas for this 200-year period. And so they were compiled or mid-1300s put together. And this is printed on the other side of the... Um, Talmud over here, and so the um, standard Talmud is then printed with Rashi on one side and with the analysis of to the commentary of Rashi on one side and the analysis of Tosfos on the other side. On top of that, around the sides, there are many, many other commentaries. Some of that is reference. Um, over the years, there's a Talmud 
quotes itself. There's a lot of counter-references across the Talmud. You've got to know exactly where it is. The Talmud itself doesn't say where else it's quote, what it's quoting, or where else that discussion is mentioned. So there's cross-referencing. Over the years, books of halacha, of Jewish law, have been written, um, such as Maimonides has an important work of Jewish law, or Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law. And so if you want to know how, where this Talmud is discussed in the code of Jewish law, we have other reference works to help you with that. So there's reference works on the sides. There's also editing that was done of the Talmud. Over the years, questions arose as to, you know, the Talmud was copied by hand for many, many years, and it was printed, and sometimes mistakes. There's every printing, and every hand copy is going to have mistakes. How do you know what's a mistake and what's not? So as a rule, if you have a book of Talmud, you never cross something out. Why? If everyone would cross out what they think is a mistake, then you'd end up with so many different versions. So we never, because you never know, you may be wrong about that mistake. So we never cross anything out in the Talmud if you think there's a mistake. All we do is we note it on the side. So there are many what appear to be mistakes in the Talmud, um, and sometimes different versions, different handwritten manuscripts or different prints will have variations, and so that's always noted then on the side as well. So that's the work of the Talmud in in just a sense of what it actually looks like. Um, Translations... um, usually don't just translate, because translating won't explain to you what it's saying, but they're usually what could be termed elucidation, where they really explain what the Talmud is saying. And so um, there was a um, big project a couple years ago to translate the Talmud by two organizations, and so the Talmud has now been translated into English um, with commentary and with explanation, as well as into Hebrew and into many other languages as well. Um, and of course, the Talmud has been analyzed in the 1500 years since the Talmud was written. The Talmud has been analyzed generation after generation. Um, and many, many commentaries then have been written on the Talmud. And um, it, of course, remains the source of Judaism and Jewish law. Yes. It's too big to abbreviate. <laughs> there are. Um, you could take a little book. There's no digest of the Talmud. There's digests of laws. So there's some books that collect all the laws in the Talmud. Or there's some books that will collect all the stories in the Talmud. There's a book that collects all the stories in the Talmud. So there are books that collect different things in the Talmud. If you want a good understanding of the Talmud and how it works, I would recommend there's a book by Adin Steinsal. It's called The Essential Talmud. That is really an overview of the Talmud and how it works. Um, we have a... Um, a we have a, a um, paperback in the, our library of the essential Talmud. I'm just going to finish off and then I'll take questions. So, Adin Steinsaltz. So, he also, he also was one of the trans, translated the Talmud into English and Hebrew, um, what's called the Steinsaltz edition of the Talmud. So, the Talmud, just to, to kind of pull it all together, the Talmud is not a standalone work. It's not just a work. It is the linchpin of 3,000 years of Torah and Jewish scholarship. It's the authoritative and comprehensive record of the 1,500 years or 1,800 years of prior scholarship. And it is the basis of the 1,500 years of Jewish scholarship since. 
The Talmud, both the scholarship that it is recording until it recorded, and as a base of study since it's been recorded, it's shaped every part of Jewish life and Judaism. The Talmudic reasoning is how Jews think. Our words and phrases are peppered with Talmudic statements and observation. Of course, it serves as the basis of everything that we do in Judaism, of all of our Jewish laws, all of, our, um, all of Judaism, is all based on what it says in the Talmud. I mean, the Talmud is not just a fascinating book. It is our way of life in Judaism. I had a teacher who once put it, it is the kishkas or intestines of Judaism. It's the, the way of life in Judaism. Sometimes we, we have a term that we refer to it as olam ha-Talmud, the world of Talmud. It's a whole world. And so for 1,500 years, every Jewish student studied Talmud for many years until they mastered its skills, they learned how to read it, they learned the Aramaic, they learned the structure, they learned its way of thinking. And every Jewish community in history, last 1,500 years, was filled with scholars and lay people who spent mornings, evenings, weekends, or Shabbats studying the Talmud. When before they had television... What did Jews do at night? When we lived in the shtetl, if you read any account of the shtetl, what did Jews do at night? What did you do when you got home at night? What did you do? So our non-Jewish neighbors all went to the bar. That's what they did. And what we did was we went to study. That's what we did in the shtetls, in the towns. We went to study. And... um, we would go, we would fill the base medrash, we would fill the houses of study or study at home. We would study. When Jews would study, what would they study? So we have many Jewish works, but most of what we would study was the Talmud. The Talmud was the basis of all of our study. And there wasn't a single functioning Jewish community without large numbers of, sc- of scholars and lay people constantly studying Talmud. A community that did not study Talmud simply vanished, did not continue, and they assimilated. They didn't continue. Every Jewish community had it. Now today, there remains, of course, large numbers of Jews and yeshivas studying Talmud. It's become more widely available than ever before. As I mentioned, the Talmud is available in English. Um, It's available with commentaries. There are many books of commentaries, many books that simplify the Talmud. Um, But unfortunately, today, in order to study the Talmud, it takes years, in order to study the Talmud from its source in Aramaic, it takes years of learning Hebrew, learning Aramaic, learning Talmudic structure, learning Talmudic reasoning, and um, it takes years and years of study. Children that go to Jewish day schools today um, learn to study Talmud, at least in high school. Uh, but unfortunately, most Jews today never do go to Jewish schools and never learn to study the Talmud. And that's why, unfortunately, the vast majority of Jews, probably more than 90% of Jews today in the United States, have never studied the Talmud before, though it remains the most important work in Judaism. Fortunately, there are translations and there are plenty of books that a person can purchase to study the Talmud. There are also no shortage of YouTube channels, podcasts, and many, many other ways anyone can study the Talmud today. It's widely available, even for people who have never opened it before, even people who don't have the background. There are many um, 
There are many um, online classes. We have a class here that studies the Talmud, but it's early in the morning, 6.30 a.m. Um, every morning. Uh, everyone, anyone's welcome to join. And um, Every morning, 6.30 to 6.55, I do. Oh, really? 6.30. 6.30 to 6.55, and then we're right for our morning service. And so um, anybody can go, and anyone has, can study the Talmud and should as... Uh, it is part of our Torah, part of our if birthright as Jews is the Torah, and the central work of the Torah is the Talmud, and everybody, I would encourage everybody to study it if they, uh, spe- and spend time studying it. To start with, I would suggest go to our website, jccmb.com, and put in keyword Talmud for beginners, and there are... Um, there are um, videos, podcasts that you can get over there that will um, teach you the Talmud. Uh, but it is the most important work in Judaism, and it's very central to our people. I'm just going to finish off, and then um, I will take questions. Um, 